We're in Matthew chapter 11, and we're basically working through, kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, going through this evidence of Jesus being Messiah. And real quick, chapter 1 lays out His genealogy and the, the, the evidence of a supernatural birth. Chapter 2 is the fulfilled prophecies that Matthew brings out. Uh, chapter 3 is the divine announcer, John the Baptist, kind of pointing the way, saying this is the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah. And it's also God Himself speaking, saying this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So God is putting His blessing, this is the one that was spoken of. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 are His divine teaching evidence uh, where He actually exposits the law the way it was supposed to be exposited. The law was never meant to be a, a tool of righteousness. It was meant to be a tool of breaking the human heart to realize that we don't have it in ourselves to please God. That's what it was, and Jesus exposits that very clearly. Chapter 8 and 9 are the supernatural miracles where He heals people there's three sets of three where he heals and then he gives a teaching on discipleship, what it means to follow him. And then chapter 10 was he sends out his divine messengers that have the same supernatural power he has. So they go out, they're casting out demons, they're healing people. And, and so they are testifying and giving evidence in these places that he is Messiah. And we saw last week when Jesus sent them out, it says that he went to their cities. Their cities were, were Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. In fact, Capernaum was where Jesus lived. So he spent most of his time in that area doing most of his ministries. In fact, chapters 8 and 9, if you go back to chapters 8 and 9, out of those nine miracles, five of them take place up there in that area. And so what we're going to see today in this passage... Well, let me go back. Last week, John the Baptist struggled because Jesus came bringing this message of grace and mercy. John the Baptist was preaching judgment and wrath. And so John's languishing in prison, in Herod's prison, and he's going, I don't understand. I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were going to set everything right. I thought you were going to come establish the millennial kingdom. I thought you were going to bring judgment and wrath to the evildoers. And, he, and Jesus came bringing grace healing the sick, inviting Levi the tax collector to come follow him. And, and it was confusing to John, so he struggled. And what he did, we saw last week, he sent people to Jesus. And that is where we should go when we struggle. We always go to the Word. Jesus said, tell him what you hear and what you experience, what you see. And we saw that last week. But there was another group that as soon as those disciples went back to John, he condemned the response of the crowd because he said, listen, John came, he's preaching this way, I come, I'm preaching a very different way, and you don't want to hear either way because you're willful unbelief, you're, you're indifferent to the gospel, and you're indifferent, he shows today because of pride. Today's passage, 20 through 30, deals with, it, it, it's a very, I think, um, it, it, it brings fear to see what he says today because we all like talking about the love of God. Everybody like everybody wants to acknowledge the love of God. Not a lot of people want to talk about the wrath of God or the condemnation of God in our culture. They this is the mentality of a lot of people. Old Testament God wrath, New Testament God grace. 
That is not true. That is a lie from the enemy. The Old Testament God is a God of grace and wrath. The New Testament God is a God of wrath and grace. It's the same God. He doesn't change. And so when Jesus comes, He he gets these different kind of responses. And the response today, we're going to see He goes to Chorazin. He goes to Bethsaida. The Christ Himself is expositing and teaching and preaching and doing miracles. And they reject it. And He has very strong words for that. And we're going to look at that in just a second. But the good news is, at the end of this passage, in the last five verses, He tells us what it looks like to have rest. Have you ever really worked so hard and you were so exhausted that you just couldn't wait to get home and plop down on your couch? What he talks about in this passage today is he came to give us rest. When he talks about rest, it's, it's rest from being exhausted. And when you try to get to God on your own, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be, you can't do it. It's an impossible task. It's like trying to swim the, the Atlantic Ocean to get to England from here. You just can't do it. It's impossible. Good news is, and it's the good news that Billy Graham spent his life proclaiming, he has spent his life proclaiming this message. It is good news it's that we can have rest. And that's what he talks about, and Matthew brings that out. So the two, here's the two things that I want you to, to hear from this passage in, in Matthew chapter 11 today. We're going to look at verses 20 through 30. And so if you want to turn there... Two things, real simple, guys. That's what I love about God. He, he doesn't make this thing complicated. One, God condemns prideful unbelief. And notice when he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Capernaum. When he's talking about these cities, he's talking about their unbelief. And he's talking to the people. He's not talking about the buildings. He's talking about the people who refuse to believe even though the evidence is right there in front of them. And that's very different. People say, well, what about the natives in Africa? And what about the people over in India? The question is, what about you who've heard? That's the question. What are you doing with the truth that God has brought into your life? See, those other thoughts or distractions, God... God is so merciful and so gracious that He speaks to people wherever they are. Nobody's going to be without excuse. Nobody's going to be able to raise their hand and say, well, I never heard. I didn't know. Because the creation testifies, He says, to the fact that there's a God. If there's somebody who's going to follow, who's going to trust, He's going to bring a messenger to them. I've seen Him do that to the most remote places of the world. To the Arctic tundra in the middle of sub-zero weather 12 hours north of the Arctic Circle. Now you tell me what person is going to go up there unless God moves in their heart to go up there. So he condemns a prideful heart, but the second thing he does is he pardons humble faith. You know what's, what's great? Is that we have a God that pardons. Most of us in here have never, ever been convicted of a serious crime here on earth. But we all have the serious crime of breaking God's law. Most people go through life and we feel like we're pretty good people. We haven't murdered anybody, you know. We, we, we're not addicted to drugs or whatever you want to place in that category. 
But the truth is, James said, the brother of Jesus says, if you break one law, it's like breaking them all. So it doesn't matter whether you break this little law or whether you break the big law. You break one, you break them all. And you earn God's wrath. That's what we earn. And we're going to see that. So uh, starting in verse 20, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to come back and we're going to unpack each of these just a little bit. Starting in verse 20, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor. That's that word, labor, means to intense, it's an intense exhaustion who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. May God bless the reading of His Word. You go back to verse 20. He began to denounce. That's condemn. He's condemning. He is is calling out Chorazin. I've been in Chorazin. You know what's there now? Rubble. Rubble. I've been in Bethsaida. You know what's at Bethsaida now? Rubble. Capernaum. You know what's in Capernaum now? Rubble. Capernaum's in a beautiful place. There's no reason it shouldn't have something there. But you know why there's rubble there? Because Jesus cursed it. He cursed it, but He doesn't curse it because of the doesn't say he cursed it because of their immorality, does it? I think sometimes we think that stuff that we may do is so bad that God can't forgive us. But the reason he cursed it is not for any act they did except for the act of unbelief. It's they didn't repent. And he's saying here, listen, he's, he's condemning prideful unbelief because the only reason you would not repent is pride. It was the reason Saul didn't repent in the Old Testament. When you look at Saul's life, and I've used this a bunch in here, when you look at Saul, King Saul's life, and you look at King David's life, on the surface, who did more uh, bad things immorally? David did. I mean, who murders one of his troops so that he can sleep and marry his wife? That's pretty immoral, isn't it? I mean, that's terrible. But the difference between Saul and what David did is when they were confronted, Saul didn't repent. 
He grabbed, he tried to grab onto Samuel and say, walk with me, because he cared more about having that stature among men than he did bowing his heart to acknowledge that he was a sinful man. David bowed and said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. I'm a dirty man. I'm a wicked man. He was humble. But in this text, there's three things I see about what's going on here. And, and, and as I, I have to admit, I've read through this passage a bunch. I never really thought much about this. But the first thing I notice is he says that if the works done here had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon was always mentioned. If you go back to Ezekiel 26 and Ezekiel 28 in the Old Testament, those passages talk about Tyre and Sidon and the, and the wrath of God, the evilness of these cultures. They, they were um, obsessed with luxurious living and they were Baal worshipers. They worshiped idols. And so in the Old Testament, they were constantly, they were held up in multiple books in the Old Testament um, uh, for their Baal worship and their arrogance, and they were, they were condemned. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if these works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Who knew their heart? Only a God of, of the universe could know that if, if you experienced something, you would repent. But what I see in it is He's sovereign over revelation. Why didn't He bring miracles to Tyre and Sidon? Why didn't He? Why does He, why does he, bring, why does he bring a guy into your life that says, you know what? You need Jesus. Have you ever thought about following Jesus? Here's the Gospel. Why does He bring a Billy Graham into the life of so many people? Or somebody else, just a personal guy like a Bill Bright who creates an organization that goes all over campuses, why does He do that to some people and other people He doesn't? That's because He's sovereign over revelation. He's sovereign over who He reveals it to. Now, we don't like that. We don't like that at all. We go, that ain't right. Which takes us to the next thing. He doesn't owe anyone anything. He's the God of all creation. And that is very hard for us to swallow. We want to be, like Max said, C.S. Lewis when he was doing that, we want to be the captain of our ship. We want to be the captain of our soul. We don't want to acknowledge that we're not in control of everything. So we spend our whole lives trying to control our little world. And God doesn't owe us one thing. He doesn't owe us the breath we breathe every day. And that's why throughout the New Testament, when you wake up in the morning, you see that He calls for us to be grateful no matter what we're going through. Rejoice in all things. In all things. And it's hard. It's not easy. You know, I, I can't imagine what my friend went through. You've spent your life in ministry. Your wife leaves you. How do you resolve that? How do you give thanks in the midst of that? Because you give thanks for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what you give thanks for. That's what you rejoice in. That we don't have to try to figure everything out. That all we are called to do is to trust Him, His character, and His love as we walk through this process. But He doesn't owe us anything. And then the last thing in that first part is His judgment is greater for those with revelation than those that don't have it. Do you know there's degrees of hell just like there's degrees of heaven? 
There's degrees of punishment. There's degrees of reward. Everybody's not going to be experiencing the same thing in heaven or in hell. You stop and think about that. That's... You know, when He says woe, that is not a good thing, okay? (laughs) When Jesus Christ says woe to you, that's not good. If you go back and look, it's in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos. Go back to those passages in, in the Old Testament and see where He says woe. It is always symbolic of wrath and judgment. Intense anger from God. Uh, I was just reading the other day in uh, Numbers. In fact, I was talking yesterday and Cody goes, who reads Numbers devotionally? I mean, and I'm saying, well, because that's where I was as I was reading through the Bible. But the people of Israel were complaining about the manna. They go, oh man, do we have to keep eating this junk? And it says the anger of the Lord burned and it was like fire. Fire was actually consuming the camp. And they came to Moses and begged for mercy. And he, he cried out to God and it says the flame subsided. Do you want God's wrath on you? I don't think so. And, and we don't talk about that. Most people in our country think God is some uh, elderly grandfather, some benevolent grandfather up there. And Jesus is a fishing buddy we go drink a beer with down at the lake. That's kind of the mentality that we presented. Somehow there was this merging of the 60's hippie culture and Jesus in the Jesus movement that Jesus is just kind of our best friend. He's the God of the universe. I mean, when He died on that cross, the heavens shook. There's going to be intense judgment. And there's going to be degrees. And that's what He's saying here. And the degrees of judgment are not for people because of the degrees of the sin they commit. It's because of their unbelief and they keep getting people coming into their life saying, hey, John, Jesus loves you. Yeah, I know, man. I'm going to do that one day. You know what, Glenn? God has a a plan. He, He wants you to know you can be forgiven. Yeah, one day I'm going to get around to it. And just keep putting it off. And putting it off. And putting it off. And that's what they were doing. These people, and the only reason you do that is because of pride. I don't need it. I don't need it. And that's what he says. And he he denounces Capernaum. He says, will you be exalted to the heavens? And you know what it conjures up there? He says, you will be brought down to Hades. Let me read this for you over in Isaiah. And listen who it says almost the same thing about in Isaiah chapter 14. And you tell me if Jesus isn't making a point here. You know, Jesus was great at using the Scriptures they would know. Isaiah 14, 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? You know who it's talking about there? Satan. 
You are never more like Satan than when you exhibit pride in yourself and your ability. That's scary right there. That's just flat out scary. Because it is so easy for pride to come into your heart and you think you're somebody and you think you deserve something and you think you ought to get something. It is by God's grace that we get anything we have. And what Jesus is saying to them, He's going, whoa, this is in the Scriptures for our benefit. This has been preserved for thousands of years for us to be able to sit here and say, People have been doing the same thing for thousands of years. They've been rejecting God. They did it in the Old Testament when Israelites said, oh, if we could only go back to Egypt and eat the food that was free. We didn't pay anything for it there. Really? What about those whips that were on your back? What about that slavery you were in bondage to the Egyptians? And they were the big sin for the Israelites, you know what they were saying? We want to go back and live with these idol worshipers rather than live with God out here. That's what they were saying. Jesus is condemning these people for their unbelief, and it was pure pride. And you know why? It's easy to see that because what he says in the next few verses, go down to verse 25 where he says, at that time, in other words, he's right on the heels of that, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned or wise and understanding. He's making a play on words right there. He's not saying wise and understanding like they're really wise and understanding. It's sarcastic. You need to know that. He's not saying that these people are wise that He's hidden it from. He's saying you've revealed it to little children. You see, guys, the pardon that He offers us has terms and conditions. You you don't surrender to God on your terms. That's part of the issue for most people. Is they they want God, but they they want to treat Him like an ATM machine or a genie in a bottle. They you don't come to Him with your conditions. When you surrender, what do you do? Can you imagine the Japanese showing up in World War II saying, "Okay, we're surrendering, and here's our here's our terms." They tried that on a couple of occasions. It didn't work too well, did it? Because the, the weaker power always has to submit to the greater power when you surrender. And we forget that. And so we, we've somehow been led down a road to think that we come to God on our terms. You can come to Him with anything you've ever done. There's absolutely nothing that disqualifies you from following Him except unbelief. But He says here, the first thing... The first term is dependence. Remember back in Matthew 5 when Jesus, the first thing He does, He takes the disciples up on the Mount of Beatitudes and He says, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about humility. Humility is always the starting point for salvation. It always is. You cannot come to Christ in a prideful manner. He's not going to. That was the problem. The rich young ruler, he tells him, hey, you know what? Uh, go sell everything. I've done, you know, have you, you know, what, what must I do? Well, you got to, you know, keep the commandments. Well, I've done all those, which was a lie, first of all. That shows the pride. He had not done all those. Nobody keeps all the commandments. We all break them. Do you think he loved God every day with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, which every Jewish person was commanded to do? No, he didn't do that. 
Do you think his money wasn't an idol? We know it was an idol because when he said, give it away, he couldn't do it. He went away grieved. So he, he had pride in his heart. And Jesus is telling him what to do and he wouldn't do it. He was not humble. He was a prideful man. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud. Do you want to be at enmity with God? Do you want to be at war with God? You be proud. Be a proud person. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds it. In other words, this is the beauty of it all. We think we finally figure it out. You know, we, we, we come to this place, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Took me a while, but I finally figured it out. I've heard people make that statement so many times. Yeah, you figured it out. You just came to that all on your own. <laughs> you know what I think of? I think of my daughter, Abby. Abby has Down syndrome and autism and was severely neglected and she can't take care of herself. They are living illustrations of the attitude that God wants in each one of us. The problem is we think we can take care of ourselves. Abby comes to me and sometimes I get so irritated, she'll come over and she'll just grab my hand and she'll and, and I'm like, what is it, Abby? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I ask her five times before she'll tell me. Potty. I'm like, go to the potty then. And then I realize, you know, that she just needs help. And I, I was just really struck by how dependent she is on me and Lori for everything. Even to go to the bathroom. And, and our attitude with God is, we just need God when things get tough. We don't need Him in the everyday. Only when things get tough. We don't seek His input on things unless we get on our back and we go, okay, now I need Him. Okay, now it's time. I need to go check what God wants on this because I can't figure this out. Instead of starting with Him, He is the starting point instead of the, the point that we come to when we're at the point of exhaustion, basically. And that's what Jesus is bringing out here. So dependence, humility, is the first term of our surrender. It's the first term of our pardon. Can you imagine a criminal going trying to dictate to the government after they've committed this gross crime? Remember this guy I told you about that uh, I got involved in this case and I end up testifying and he ends up getting convicted and I told him two, three years before, this is what's going to happen. And he just kind of laughed because of pride. He laughed it off. Well, he got sentenced and this month he went to jail. He went to federal prison. And I remember sitting up there at his sentencing and he's like, petitioning to go to work camp and he's trying to set the terms for what it's going to look like and the judge didn't listen to anything he said he just bam slammed the gavel down you're going away you don't dictate when you're the offending party you basically when you're asking for a pardon it's up and it's up to the person who's pardoning you and and the term first term is humility blessed are the poor in spirit that's humility second term is divine revelation. In other words, God revealing to us who He is. He gives us this divine revelation and if you try to get there without that divine revelation, like people try to read this Bible down here like you try to read the newspaper. You can't do that. This is not a human book. This is a book that's only discerned through spiritual insight. That's why people go, well, I can't understand it. Have you prayed? 
Have you asked God to help you understand it? Well, no, I probably should do that. Well, you should do that. Because the only way you're going to understand it is if God reveals it to you. This is divine. This, this is a holy book. This is not just any book. It is God's Word to us, and you can't even begin to understand unless He gives you spiritual insight. John 10, you know what it says in John 10, 3? My sheep hear my voice. Andrew, who was here earlier, um, quoted this verse to somebody he was talking to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me just read this for you. 1 Corinthians 1. This is very insightful. Starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age, of this age? Has not God made the foolish, has he not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's not our wisdom. If I could just, you know, intellectually help them understand. God does use the intellect. Thank God that we have guys like C.S. Lewis that have articulated things and other people that God's used in a way and He uses those people. But even their writings are like, it's like trying to read Greek unless God pulled the veil off your eyes. And so one of the terms is divine revelation. Understand, it's not our perceiving. It's His revealing. So when we pray, that's what we ask. God, help me to see. That's why He says, I knock at the door, Revelation 3.20, I knock at the door. Do you know how many guys who I know right now are not walking with the Lord. They're so consumed with their business. They're so consumed with their life. I invite, there's, there's three or four guys that I invite almost every day to come be in relationship with other guys around the Word. I'm going to do it, man, one day. I'm going to do it. And you know when they'll come? They'll come when things get tough. That's when people do. And I, it just breaks my heart. I was that guy. It took almost dying in a plane crash to get me. And I don't want that for you. It should not take a 9-11 moment. And so God brings messengers into our life to reveal. I look back and there were guys who kept trying to get me to do things and I just I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. Well, the third term of the pardon is repentance. He says in verse 28, Come to me, 
Come to me. Well, if you're coming to him, you're coming from somewhere. Repentance is a word that we don't talk about very much because it has this, I don't know, Baptisty feel to it, I guess. Whatever. But it, it simply means I'm going in this direction and I, I want to turn to go in that direction. That's what it means. Repentance means to turn. Acts 2.38, Peter's preaching and he says, Repent! Acts 17, Paul's preaching and he says, Repent! Jesus came in uh, Matthew 4.17 preaching repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. The apostles preached repentance. It is a turning from idols, things in the world. You cannot come to Christ if you're holding on to your idols. You can't. You can't do it. It's impossible. You've got to let go and say, God, I want You. I want You. I want to come to You because I'm tired of the labor. I'm tired of the work with this way. And that's what He says. You know what most people, how they view repentance? They have sorrow. If you ask people to define repentance, they would say, well, it's being sorry. It's asking forgiveness. If you go over into uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about two types of sorrow. A godly sorrow that produces true repentance and a worldly sorrow. That worldly sorrow he talks about is only being upset over the consequences of your sin. And a lot of people think because they're upset about the consequences of their sin, they're repentant. When he says in Matthew 5.4, blessed are those that mourn, they shall be comforted. The mourning is having a, a real understanding that you are a broken person. Your life is flawed. You've screwed it up. We all do. I don't stand up here having any more hold on this than anybody else. We all are broken. And what he's saying is that it's necessary for us to turn from trusting in anything that's trying to help us deal with our brokenness except for Him. He's the only thing. The fourth term is faith in Jesus. You can't just turn from this to Him. You've got to trust. You've got to trust. He says rest. That word there conveys salvation. It's a rest for your souls. It's not just an ascent. We, I bet if you ask most people in church, they would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But th- what they've done is they've placed their faith not in Jesus the person, they've placed their faith in a transaction that He died on the cross. Some information in a propositional way. That's not what Jesus is calling about. In fact, all throughout Scripture, Jesus says what? Follow Me. He talks about process. Paul and Peter, repent, turn from this. Live a life worthy of your calling, he says. That shows a a turning that has a trust. I can offer you a gift all day long, but if you don't ever take it, you don't ever receive it, you keep falling back into the same pattern of trying to earn God's favor. If I could just get control of this, can I tell you, you will never get control of pornography, you'll never get control of alcohol, you'll never get control of drugs, you'll never get control of lust, you'll never get control of any of these things in your own power. It just ain't going to happen. You can try all the man-made methods you want. All the, the 12 steps, all the AA, all the everything else, but unless Jesus is the Lord of your heart, it ain't going to never work. This ain't going to happen. You'll have temporary success, but there'll be this gnawing that hits you and hits you until you come to the place of saying, 
I'm trusting. I know. I was addicted. I had several addictions. And he took it all away over time. Now, did that mean he takes the temptation away? No. Do you know that the, the addictions I struggle with, I still, there's times that I want to act on them. But because of Jesus, I know the truth. And because of what He did on the cross, I don't want to bring anything upon Him for what He did for me. I don't want to discredit the fact that His power is not strong enough to help me. If He's strong enough to be raised from the dead, He's strong enough to give me the victory over anything, anything in this world. And He brings me rest. He brings me rest and He can bring you rest. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes... And that word is, is pistis. It's, it means a faith that produces an action. A belief that produces an action. So if you say you love Jesus, but your life shows otherwise, then you're not exercising that kind of faith. Whoever believes in Me will not perish, but have eternal life. John 1.9 says um, through 13 talks about for those that believe, they shall be called what? The children of God. That's our dad. When we go out into the world, we represent him. Live like you're his kids. Go out. You represent the Christ. It's not a sin, guys. John 10, 7 through 15. I'm going to then I'm finish up. John 10, 7 through 15. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in, and he will find pasture. In other words, you will be fed. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Guys, He wants you to know Him. It's dependence. It's divine revelation. It's, it's repentance. It's faith. And finally, it's surrender. Matthew 28.18 says, what? Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey all all that I've commanded. You, you can't do that if you haven't surrendered. Oh, you know what? I want what Jesus did on the cross, but I'm not going to obey Him. John 3.36. Everybody quotes John 3.16. You know, but John 3.36, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So He equates disobedience with unbelief. Now that, listen, we're not talking about perfection. It's direction. Because when you blow it, you keep coming back to the cross and it brings a humility, it brings a gratefulness. 1 Thess 2.12 and Ephesians 4.1 says the same thing. I'm going to finish with that. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to have one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. God owns the world, and He's called you to follow Him. He's offered it to you. Is He going to meet prideful unbelief? Or is He going to meet a humility and a trust? That's the issue. That's what Matthew's bringing out here. And the question that we have to wrestle with when we walk out that door today, we've got two questions. Am I going to be a person who hears God's truth and pridefully says, that doesn't apply to me, that's somebody else. I don't need it because I'm, I'm big enough to take care of myself. Or are we going to be humble enough to say, okay, God, what is it in my life, one, I need to repent of? And, and what, what does that look like? I don't even know. But I want you to help me learn how to depend on you. I want to depend on you because I need you. I can't do it on my own. I can't do it on my own. That's, that's what he's saying right here. And the question for us is when we walk out, are we going to surrender? Are we going to surrender?